Robin, hello. I have started uh, listening to the autobiography. And I just, so I'm actually now just about to listen to the beginning of the autobiography. So I thought, well, I'll just tell you that I found the introduction, the forward, and well, whichever part I listened to, which was the first part, uh, tedious. So I decided I don't want to be told by somebody who's already familiar with the book, uh, you know, what it all means. And I don't want to be told history or anything. I want to read Emily Carr. So I listened for a little bit until it became too tedious for me. And I decided all I wanted was, very simply, I want Emily Carr and Robin Milne. And I... Uh, Robin, I don't know what the correct pronunciation of Spirea is but I hear you striving hard to find the correct pronunciation. Now, I would urge you to spend no time searching for the correct pronunciation of words while you're reading, because it totally distracting for the listener, or at least all I should say is it distracts me. And it doesn't matter to me if you pronounce it uh, Spirea and I pronounce it Spirea. I'm not going to be uh, anyway bothered by that, since, for all I know, both of us may be incorrect, or both of us. We may be both be incorrect or, for that matter, idiosyncratic. Hi, Paul. Thanks for your messages. Yeah, I know. I, I sometimes do that, and I get nervous about it when I come to a word, and I'm like, did I say that right? Uh. Yes, I'll try not to do that, because it does distract me, too. I've listened back to some of my casts, and I'm just like, I roll my eyes going, ugh. So... But I'm not about to just recast all the time or redo them either. So, yeah, the the idiosyncrasies of it all is just how it is, right? Right. You know about the foreword, the uh, introduction is too long. The foreword itself is about, I think, two minutes. And it the only reason I would ask you maybe to go to see the smaller piece, and you can do it on um, Lemur. I've done the foreword by itself. It might be four minutes. Anyway, um, is there's a poem in there. And of course I forgot here. <laughs> you have to go in one minute segments. So I went on talking. I don't know where I left off. But what I was getting at is on Lemur, there's, you can do the forward, but you can listen to the forward by itself. I'd like you maybe to see, just to hear the poem that this guy wrote to her as the forward. Not, he didn't... Uh, this was, I guess, she, I don't know what play. I haven't gotten to the part where what he plays in her life, but he he puts the words of a poem that they have shared together as his foreword. And uh, I thought you might like that. But that's a shorter part of this thing. So that I put that by itself in lemurs. So 
when you have time. Thank you for listening, Paul. I'm so glad you are. That makes me happy. Thank you so much. Robin, I was really itching to get on with the autobiography. Um, I'll go back and listen to the forward sometime. But I want to get into the autobiography and I haven't really got into it yet. I, I'm i still on, well, I, I had, uh, I'm still in Mother, I think. But, um, but this is typical me because I've only just finished uh, listening to a Picnic at Hanging Rock. I mean, I literally finished picking, Picnic at Hanging, Hanging Rock yesterday or something like that so um, uh, yeah which I'm I'm not really hi Robin I've reached the place where you were discussing the different ways in which people spoke about other people from the 1940s to today. And uh, one of the words you, you drew attention to that was used was uh, hunchback. And I thought to myself, well, yes, we have the word hunchback is around in modern society a lot. The hunchback of Notre Dame. Isn't that a... Uh, that's something famous. I wish I could remember what it is. But the hunchback of Notre Dame is is uh, some kind of a musical or something. Yeah, so, well, I, I mean, this, um, who, I got a question mark, who thinks, who is it who thinks that all the literature, all the history books, all the, well, let's, yeah, let's just call it literature, um, of the past should be rewritten, um, changing the language used so as to fit with modern values and fashion. Uh, who is it who thinks that that should be done? I uh, have come across, as you know, we, we all know, individuals who from time and time, and even little groups, who from time to time pop up and say that we should uh, censor this piece of text or we should change the words and this and that. But who says that there should be a systematic trawl back through literature in order to change what has been written? Uh, if you find out, do let me know. Hi, Paul. I'm just getting ready to read another piece and I thought, oh, I'm see I didn't see your messages so here I am looking and seeing your messages okay so yeah read on it's interesting but about the 40s language um, I come from a library background so many people complain in libraries and schools about the text of certain stories and they try to ban it they try to ban the reading of it for kids or um and I'm just thinking about that in that kind of context 
and this context of the singing of the songs, you know, baby, it's cold outside, all the rest of all of that. I mean, it feels censorship-like to me. And let me go on in another message because it looks like this one's getting to the first or the one minute mark. I also have a teacher hat on because I'm in the school district frequently and I'm teaching English at times. And we went to a reading of a a short piece recently in a middle school class and they were, it was about uh, throwing your siblings or, you know, it was a a short story about how they did it in the past where they would have to sacrifice one of their children because there wasn't enough to go around or something. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that's from the past that people have aversion to today. Now, about Hunchback of Notre Dame, that's the Victor Hugo's story. It probably is a different... He probably made it from something else. It was probably a story before he made it famous. Let me go on one more message here. And so what I'm getting at is you would never call anybody a hunchback today because they have a punt, a back, a deformity. <laughs> that's called politically not correct. And that's what I'm getting at. So many things. You would never call somebody a Jap today. You would never call somebody a Jew today. Um, so there's language like that in this book. And I know in that hunchback situation, he was the bell ringer of Notre Dame and he was half blind and deaf. And uh, Quasimodo was his name, remember? And um, he was like sort of a hermit up there in the bell tower. And um, people would despise and shun him for his appearance, you know? So that is considered a derogatory term at some level if you're teasing somebody and making fun of them. Yeah, that's not politically correct anymore. So what I'm getting at in that language is, you know, I'm bringing that to the forefront that there's language like that in this book because of the time it was written. And we should not ban that thing. It's like, I think we should be looking at it and and learning and, and being interested in it and seeing what happened and where we are now. That's kind of where I am with bringing that up, I guess. I haven't listened back to where you were. I don't even know where I mentioned that, but I remember when I was reading it thinking, whoa, (laughs) yeah, so, I mean, there's many books, you know, Huck Finn, for for that matter, has, you know, all kinds of derogatory terms for black people, and um, slaves, and, you know, we went through a horrible, horrible time with, and we still are, we still are doing that, there's still stuff going on. But anyway, we learn, we go forward, right? I was just listening to my last message and I thought one more thing about her is that she's writing this, you know, so she's speaking. This is her language. This is Emily Carr speaking about speaking in slang terms. So (laughs) it's not like she's just uh, doing it for fictional reasons or anything or for making a story. This is like probably how she thought and and heard language and um, that was her environment. So I find that fascinating. It's, it's a fascinating read so far. So I'm I'm moving on today to some more chapters. They're not they're not uh, numbered. They're just titled. So 
I can't really tell you where I am. I'm on page 61, 62 today, and I'll read in through another 10 or 20, 10 or 12 pages. Okay. All right, Paul. Thank you for listening. I'm appreciating knowing somebody's listening out there that I know. <laughs> the next part of our reading. We're into the last chance is the name of this chapter, starting at page 74. During my sister's visit, I said to Alice, can it be possible that the entire wicked awfulness of the world is stuffed into San Francisco? Why do you think that? Mrs. Piddington said, but I did not tell Alice what Mrs. Piddington said. She was a contented person, did not nose around into odd corners. This and that did not interest Alice, only the things right in the beaten path. The things she had always been accustomed to, those she clung to. Before leaving Victoria, various friends had asked of her Look up my cousin, look up my aunt. Alice good-naturedly always said, certainly, and accepted a long list of miscellaneous lookups. People could just as well have sent a letter to ask how their friends did, or if they liked the new world. They all seemed to have come from the old. When I said so, Alice replied that I was selfish and that people liked hearing from the mouth of an eyewitness how their relatives are. Alice was rather shy and made me go along, though I was not amiable about these visits. First, we went to see the cousin of a friend. She was 80 and had an epileptic son of 60. He had stopped development at the age of seven or eight. Mind and body were dwarfed. He had an immense head, a nondescript body, foolish little boy legs that dangled from the chair edge, as he sat in the parlor opposite to us, nursing his straw hat as if he were the visitor. His mother said, shake hands with the ladies, Jumble. Jumble was the name he'd given himself, and it was very appropriate. Jumble leapt from his chair as if he were leaping from a housetop, skipped to the far side of the room and laid his hat down on the floor. He came running back and held out two wide short-fingered paws we each took one, and he gave us each a separate little hop, which was supposed to be a bow. The ladies came from Canada, Jumble. He clapped his hands. I like Canada. She sends pretty stamps on her letter. Jumble has a stamp book. Jumble likes stamps. He likes plum cake, too. Jumble wants his tea. Quick, quick. He patted, pattered into the joining room where the tea was laid climbed into his chair and began to beat on his plate with a spoon. He is all I have, sighed the woman, and motioned us to follow, whispering, I hope, my dears, you are not nervous. Jumble may, may have a fit during tea. We had never seen anything but a cat in a fit, but we lied and said we were not nervous. Jumble consumed vast wedges of plum cake, but he did not have a fit. After tea, they saw us to our tram. Eighty-year hobble and trot, trot of a half-wit, escorting us. Once aboard, I groaned, who next? 
Alice produced her list. Mabel's aunt. Now don't be mean, Millie. People naturally want to hear from an eyewitness. Pleasanter for them than seeing for themselves. Mabel's aunt was gaunt. She lived in a drab district. She kissed us before we ever got the chance to say why we had come. But then, but when we said we came from Mabel, she fell on us again and kissed and kissed. She had never seen Mabel, but she had known Mabel's mother years before Mabel was born. Every time we mentioned Mabel's name, she jumped up and kissed us again. Needless to say, she was English. In time, we learned to avoid mention of Mabel. <laughs> that restricted conversation to the weather and Mabel's aunt, Mabel's aunt's cat, a fine tabby. While we were grappling for fresh talk material, the aunt said, Oh, my dears, such a drive, such lovely, lovely flowers. Where? When? We were eager at the turn of the conversation had taken. We were eager at the turn of the conversation had taken. Flowers seemed a safe, pleasant topic. My son took my son took me this morning. It is a long way. There were marvelous carpets of flowers, every color, every kind. Oh my dear, such flowers. My son is a doctor, visiting doctor for the last chance. He takes me with him for the drive. Flowers all the way. I don't mind waiting while he's inside. I look at the flowers. What is the last chance? I asked. Terrible, terrible. Oh my dears. Thank God that you are normal, usual. She sprang to kiss us again because we were complete ordinary girls. Again I asked, what is the last chance? A place behind bars where they put monstrosities, abnormalities, while doctors decide if anything can be done for them. She began describing cases. Of course, I've only seen a little through the bars. The little she had seen was enough to send Alice and me greenish-white. We tried to lead her back to the flowers. It was no use. We took our leave. We walked along in silence for some time. Let's forget it, I said. All the people on your list seem to have some queerness. Be the same type. Suppose we lose the list. Alice said, For shame, Millie. People at home want to hear about their relatives. It is selfish for you. It is selfish of you to grouse over their peculiarities. Relatives, peculiarities would do just as well in letters and only three, cost three cents. I'd willingly pay the stamp. They are not even relatives of our own friends. For them, we might endure. For them, we might endure, but for these nearly strangers, why should we? Again, Alice says, For shame, selfish girl. It happened that Mrs. Pennington had arranged a flower picking picnic for the very next Sunday. Someone had told her of a marvelous place. You walk through Golden Gate Park, and then on and on. There were fields and fields of flowers, all wild and to be had for the picking. At last we got there, only to be confronted by a great strong gate, on which hung a notice, Keep out! The flowers were beautiful, all right. Just outside the gate was a powerhouse and a reservoir. We asked permission at the office, and were told we might go through the gate and gather. What is the big building just inside the enclosure, asked Mrs. Piddington, but just then the man was summoned back into the office. Last chance, he called over his shoulder. <laughs> Alice and I looked at each other. 
We felt sick. Know-it-all, old Pennington explained. Windows all barred. Um, doubtless it is a reformatory of some sort. We scuttled under the barred windows, Alice and I trying to draw our party over towards a little hill away from the building. The hill was lightly, was lightly wooded and sunny, and a sunny little path ran through the wood. Flowers were everywhere, also snakes. They lay in the path, sunning themselves, and slowly wriggled out of our way, quivering the grass at the path side. You had to watch your feet for fear of treading on one. Alice and I could not help throwing scared glances behind the brick, barred-windowed building. Shadowy forms moved on the other side of the bars. We clothed them in Mabel Aunt's describings. There were not, there were not many big trees in the wood. It was all low scrub bush. You could see over the top of it. I was leading on the on the path. I had been giving one of the my backward fearful glances at last chance and turned front suddenly. I was at the brink of a great hole several yards around. My foot hung over the hole. With a fearful scream, I backed onto the rest of the party. They scolded and were furious with me. Look for yourselves then. They did and screamed as hard as I. The hole was several feet deep. It was filled with a slithering moil of snakes, coiling and uncoiling. Had my lifted foot taken one more step, I should have plunged headlong among the snakes, and I should have gone mad. Mrs. Pittington was too horrified even to faint. She yelled out, I've been told there are rattlers this side of the park, too. Turning aside, we broke into mad running, helter-skelter, through the thicket heading for the open. Snakes re... Snakes writhed over and under the scrub to get out of our way. The flowers of our gathering were thrown far and wide. Horrible, horrible! Our nerves prickled, and we sobbed with hurrying. We passed the last chance with scarcely one glance and rushed through the gate, coming back empty-handed. We did not even see the flowers along the way. Our minds were too full of snakes. "'Girls!' I cried. "'I want to go back to Canada. "'California can have her flowers, her sunshine, and her snakes. "'I don't like San Francisco. I want to go home.' "'And when my sisters did go back to Victoria, I was not with them. "'I was stuck to the art school.'" Mrs. Tuckett. The woman who was supposed to have assumed Mrs. Piddington's custody of me, bodily and morally, ignored everything connected. Wait, let me start that again. Sorry, I'm in this sort of darkish room. I should probably have better light before I start reading. Here we go again. The woman who was supposed to have assumed Mrs. Piddington's custody of me bodily and morally ignored everything connected with me except the board money I paid. I was her income. I had to be made to stretch over herself, her two children, and myself. The capacity of my check was so severely taxed by all, by all our wants that towards the end of the month it wore gossamer and ceased altogether. Then we lived for the pa then we lived for the last few days of each month on scraps fried on my spirit lamp 
to economize kitchen fuel. The woman's children, a girl of six and a boy of four, any mother might have been proud of, but she referred to them as my encumbrances because they prevented her from devoting her entire time to art. Mrs. Tuckett was jealous of my my youngness, jealous of my freedom. An art dealer had once praised a sketch done by her, and from that time she knew no peace from the longing which possessed her to give her life, all of it, to art. The boy Kirkaby, aged four, and I were great chums. He was at my heels every moment I was in the house, a loving little fellow who had two deep terrors, blood and music. The sight of blood would turn the child dead white. One note of music would send him running outdoors, away anywhere from the sound, his hands to his ears. He angrily resented my guitar. Pushing it out of my lap, he would climb in himself and reaching his hand to my forehead would say, I feel a story in there. Tell it. It was a surprise to his mother and to me. After a few months, instead of pushing away the guitar, he would sidle up, pat the instrument and say, I like her a little now. Sing. Mrs. Tuckett had health notions, all based on economy. Uninterrupted passage of air through our cottage was one. She said it nourished as much as food. All the inner doors of the house were removed. There was no privacy whatever. No hangings were at the windows, no cushions on chairs or couch. The beds were hard and had coverings inadequate for such cyclonic surges of wind as swept in and out of the rooms. No comfort was at that cottage. Mrs. Tuckett had, too, absolute faith in a greasy pack of fortune-telling cards. She foretold every event after it had happened. <laughs> after Kirkaby, I want to say Kirkaby, I'm so used to Pear Kirkaby. After Kirkaby had cut his head open, she knew he was going to be cut. After Anna got the measles, she knew the child had been exposed. When I missed the ferry boat, she said the cards had foretold it, but so had the clock. (laughs) After the dealer had praised her sketch, she wowed, sorry, after the dealer had praised her sketch, she vowed that she had been prepared because the cards indicated someone would. She was angry because I laughed and would not have my cards read. I got so sick of being haunted by the Ace of Spades and the Queen of Hearts that I suggested we read a book aloud after the children were in bed at night. Mrs. Tuckett read well but chose depressing books, delighting in dead-beth scenes and broken love affairs. She would lay the book down on the table and sob into her handkerchief. It embarrassed me so much that I said, Suppose we find a good merry funeral story to cheer us up. Then she was offended and said I was without romance or sentiment. One day as I came in from school, Mrs. Tucker beckoned to me from the doorway of her bedroom. The wind was busy in there, tearing the covers off the bed, whirling the pincushion, and clanking the window blind. Listen, in the middle of the turmoil, a cruel, tearing, tearing breathing. Kirkaby's. I bent over the bed. 
The, ch the child did not know me. Get a doctor, quick! But doctors are so expensive, she claimed. She complained. Quick! I stamped my foot. She got a homeopathist. Or a homeopathist. <laughs> I never know how to say these. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> okay, I'll say it again. <laughs> I think it's homeopathist. She got a homeopathist, not that she believed in homeopathy, but that this doctor woman was a friend of hers and would not charge. We moved a cot into the unfurnished front room of the cottage and took turns and turn and took turn and turn about sitting on an apple box beside it watching. Little Kirkaby battled with death in this grim setting. The crisis came one night just as I had turned in for my four hours of rest. Come! The cottage was full of moonlight. She had switched out all the lights so that Kirkaby would not see the blood. There was hemorrhage. We worked in and out between the shadows and moonlight, doing what we could. The exhausted child dropped back on the pillow like a wilted snowdrop. The woman yawned. I'll take forty winks now. Your, your bed, I think. Handier, should you need me. That doesn't sound right. Sorry. I'll take forty winks now. Your bed, I think. Handier, should you need me. As she passed through the living room, she switched on a light and stood wrapped in, an, in admiration of the sketch the dealer had praised. It was framed and hung on the wall. I heard a deep, deep sigh, then blackness, the sounds of sleep. Moonlight flooded the bare room. The life of the child flickered. Kirkaby, in the bed, was scarcely more tangible than the moonlight. I sat the night out on the apple box. Art, I hate you. I hate you. You steal from babies. I cried, and I could not go to school next morning. I did not go back for a whole week. I told stories and sang to Kirkaby, feeling very tender towards the child and bitter towards Art and the woman. Summer vacation came. I did not like summer vacation. I was compelled to spend it at Auntie's in San Jose. Auntie o undertook to discipline me for two years each vacation. The year was past and the year to come. Between aunt and me, there was no love. Mrs. Tuckett was giving up the cottage. She was joining a friend in Chicago. There were to, they were to run a boarding house. She was full of plans. Kirkaby and I watched her packing. Kirkaby, a mere shadow child, clinging to his chair to keep the wind from blowing him away. Mrs. Tuckett held up his little patched pants. The wind filled them. Their empty legs were vigorous with kickings. Kirkaby laughed. My pants are fatter than me. The woman pressed the wind out of the pants and tumbled them into the trunk. I am not going to Chicago, she banged down the tr trunk lid. What has happened, I asked. All our, our, bleh, all your arrangements are made? The cards say I shall not go. When I returned from San Jose, the cottage was for rent. I never heard of Mrs. Tuckett or her art or little Kirkaby again.